All right, I hope you'll take your Bibles and open to Mark chapter 14. Mark 14, and as you turn there, I will go back and I want to remind you of a, an event that is familiar to you, to most of you at least. Remember a time when there was a famine. The people of God were without food, and so they went to a place where food was more plentiful. They went to Egypt, made their home there, and when they went, they weren't a nation. They were a large family, a a tribe, maybe, but a people to whom God had made promises. So they go to Egypt, they take up residence there, and what the Bible tells us is that they grew in number. They grew to such an extent that the Egyptian leaders felt threatened by their presence. So they conquered them and made them slaves. And for 400 years, the people who had received the promises of God lived as slaves in a foreign nation under foreign rule. But a time came when God rescued them out of slavery. And the way he rescued them was through a means of brutal judgment against Egypt. You remember the plagues and that final sign of judgment, God sent an angel of death to pass over all of Egypt and the firstborn of every family and of every flock was killed. Maybe you know the story, maybe you're familiar with the story, but just let that settle in. What we experienced in our country over the past year with COVID doesn't even compare to every house on one night having a death. And not only in the family, which is the most significant, but the first of every flock killed. This was God's judgment on Egypt because they refused to let the people of God free. But remember that before God sent the angel of death that would fly over all of Egypt and kill the firstborn of every family and every flock, he made a way of safety a way of salvation for his people. He gave them specific instructions. He told them when the day would come, and he said, before that day, you're to choose a a spotless and a perfect lamb. And on that evening, kill that lamb and take the blood from that lamb and put it over the, the door of your house. And that blood will be assigned to the angel of the Lord to pass over. The blood was a sign and a means of salvation. That night they were to take that lamb after using its blood, they were to take it and to to cook it and to eat it, all of it. And if any remained, it was to be burned. That's what they did. They spread the blood, they ate the lamb along with bitter herbs and unleavened bread. They did exactly what God told them to do and God did exactly what he said he would do. Isn't that good news? That God does exactly what he promises he will do. For all who obeyed, he passed over. His judgment came against Egypt, but all who trusted were saved by the covering of the blood of a lamb. And it was through that act of judgment that God leads his people out of slavery in Egypt. And in remembrance of that event, at the same time that he gave the instructions for what to do on that day, this is in Exodus chapter 12, if you want to read it, he tells them what they're to do. And at the same time, he tells them, this won't be the only time you do this. In fact, I want you to do this every single year. 
Now, the angel's not going to pass over, but as a sign of remembrance, a sort of reenactment. So every night, or excuse me, every year, they would celebrate Passover. They would sacrifice a lamb. They would eat it with herbs and unleavened bread. And the point every year was twofold. First, that they would look back and remember, God is our salvation. He's the one who's delivered us. And then also that they would look forward in anticipation of the future salvation of God. The people obeyed and they kept this feast for generations. First, they kept it in the wilderness. And then when they were in the promised land, when the temple was built in Jerusalem, God commanded that this was the place where they should celebrate Passover. So every year for the Jews during this time, there was a pilgrimage. As they all make their way to Jerusalem to eat the feast of Passover in the city. The time from the Exodus to the time of Christ is about 1,500 years. And we know that during the time of Christ, it's a tradition that continued. Luke 2, verse 41, we're told that the parents of Jesus went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And not just them. This is what all faithful Jews did. Anyone who could would get to Jerusalem. And so think about this. For Jesus, every year, you have an annual trip. This was one of their annual trips. Every year to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Passover. As we come to Mark chapter 14, this is the setting. It's, it's that time of year. It's time for that trip It's the day of the feast of Passover and Jesus and his disciples are going together into Jerusalem to share this meal. A meal that these guys, the 13 of them, had all most likely celebrated every year of their lives up to this point. But it's fair to say that this would be their last legitimate Passover. Because at this Passover meal, Jesus would announce a new, a better, a final sacrifice a lamb whose blood would establish a new covenant. And also, at this Passover meal, he would institute a new meal of remembrance, a new meal of anticipation. A final Passover, a first Lord's Supper, a transition from the old covenant to the new. And here's what I hope you'll see and consider this morning. This isn't new for most of you, but needful for all of us to consider that Jesus the one we sing about pray through he is the center of everything that everything that we have in the old testament all of history leads up to him and it's through him that all things will come to consummation He's at the center of it all. He's our only hope. We read earlier the question, what is our only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who has paid fully for my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. See that salvation. Then he says this, all things that come through Christ He preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. All things must work together for my salvation. It's something we confess together, and I hope you believe. 
that Jesus is our true and only hope. And I pray that through God's word this morning, you'll become more sure of this reality that Christ is all. And there's nothing more important than how we respond to him. And that if we trust in him, that we can face whatever life brings. With that in mind, let's go to God's word. Mark chapter 14. I hope you follow along as I read, starting in verse number 12. Hear the word of God. On the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And the man will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as Jesus had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve, and as they were reclining at table, eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And they began to be sorrowful to say to him one after the other, Is it I? And he said to them, It's one of the twelve who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would be bad for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink it again of the fruit of this vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Thanks be to God for his word. I pray that he would use it in us this morning. It may not be a surprise to you that I mean, one of my primary jobs, as you know, is, is planning our time together on Sunday mornings. What we'll read and what we'll sing and, of course, a sermon. So it may not be a surprise to you that I enjoy a, a liturgy. And we, we, we have that, don't we? We're not a liturgical church, but we, we start each service with a call to worship. We end each service with a benediction. We sing together, we pray together, we read the scriptures together, we hear the word preached, and none of those things are accidental, and none of them are put where they are without purpose. They all go together and work together to help us worship God and to remember the gospel and to be built up in him. And I love the pattern and the repetition, the purposefulness that we, we share together as we hear the word. 
With that in mind, with my love for a good liturgy, along with my love for a good meal, I think I really would have liked Passover. It was a feast, but it was a feast with structure and rhythm. It was a feast that had a flow and it had a place. The place of Passover was Jerusalem, which is why, maybe I wonder if you thought about this, where's Jesus and his disciples been staying? They've been staying out in Bethany, right? And they've had meals there. Why not just celebrate Passover out in the suburbs? Well, Jerusalem was the place. They needed to come into the city. It was a meal with a place, and it was also a meal with a liturgy. I wonder if you've ever heard or maybe you've experienced a Passover meal if you have Jewish friends or family. I want to just walk you through what that meal would look like. Most of us are very, very familiar with the passage we just read of the scene of the Last Supper, but have you ever thought through what was actually happening on that evening outside of what's recorded in the text? If we just look at Jewish tradition, we know that the evening would have begun with a a prayer of blessing. The head of the household, usually the father of a family, would stand up and he would lead this prayer of thanks to God for the feast and for the cup. Wine was a central part of this feast. There was actually four cups of wine that would be used at four different parts of the flow of the meal. So they would have this opening prayer, this opening blessing, and then they would all share the first cup. Then after the prayer, after that first cup, food would be brought out. It'd be placed on the table. And then after all the food was placed on the table, the eldest son, the one who had he lived at the time of the Passover and not lived in a home covered by the blood would have been killed. That son, that eldest son, will stand up and he would ask a question. Why do we do this? Why do we have this night? Why do we have these foods? I don't like roasted lamb. Why is this the meal? And in response, his father would tell the story that I began with this morning. The story of the Exodus. As part of that, they would read Deuteronomy chapter 26, 5 through 11, which Brian read for us early in our service, recounting the salvation of God. The father would tell the story, and then he would pray again, and then they would sing. They would sing the halal. So the halal, if you know the Psalms, Psalms 113 through 118, it's this section of the Psalms that was used in this Passover meal. And they would sing at this part of the meal, Psalms 113 to 115. Then they would all share that second cup. So we've had a blessing and a prayer and a question and a story. Some more singing and another cup. And then another prayer a blessing for the bread, and then the the bread would be served. And the way they would eat is they would take the bread and they would dip it into a common bowl with a a stew made of fruits and vegetables. They would dip that bread and they would eat it. This was the appetizer portion of their meal. They would eat bread. They would eat bitter herbs that were supposed to remind them of the bitter hardships of Egypt that they were saved from. After the bread and the bitter herbs, then the lamb would be served. And at this point, 
a traditional feast begins. All the food's on the table, all the food's been made available, and they would sit and they would eat and they would enjoy one another, sometimes for hours. It had to be done by midnight. So at some point, someone would say, you know, it's about 11.30, we probably should wrap things up. At that point, the father again would lead another prayer. And they would drink the third cup. And then in time for more singing. Psalms 116, Psalm 117, Psalm 118 would be sung. Then a final prayer, a sharing of the fourth cup, and the meal is completed. Quite an evening, right? And there's a couple of reasons I wanted to walk you through that. First, I just simply think it's cool to consider the way that the people of God celebrated the salvation of God for 1,500 to 2,000 years. And some still continue a, a tradition like this. This is part of our heritage, this Passover meal. And this is the meal that Jesus participated in every year of his life. Think about it. He would have been the eldest in his family right? He would have been the one to stand up and ask the question, why do we do this? It was a meal full of meaning and significance, and this is the meal that Jesus shared with his disciples the night before his death. And during this particular Passover meal, he made announcements. He announced his death, he announced a new meal, and he pointed us forward to a meal that's still to come. A final Passover, a first Lord's Supper, and a precursor for our future meal. As we come to our text, we see our text begins with the preparing for the meal. Verse 12, on the first day of unleavened bread, when they had sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go to eat the Passover? So again, They know they're going to Jerusalem, and the disciples ask Jesus, where in Jerusalem are we going to go? And we see here is that Jesus has a plan. He sends two of his disciples. Uh, The Gospel of Luke tells us that it's Peter and John. He sends two of his disciples to go into the city, and he tells them to look for something that would have been out of place. This is a culture where servant girls generally carried water if it was needful to and from the source of water to the home. He tells them, look for a man that's carrying a water jar. Follow that man. He'll take you to a house where there will be a room available and furnished. I wonder if that sounds familiar to you. This is Thursday in our text. Think back to Sunday. Jesus and his disciples coming into the city. And Do you remember the instructions he gives two of his disciples? Go into the city, and you'll find a colt tied up, and bring it back. And and there's a lot of similarities. If you read Mark 11, 1 through 6, and Mark 14, these first few verses, a lot of similarities between these two disciples being sent into Jerusalem with very specific instructions, a seeming covert mission, where they're told exactly what they'll see, exactly what they'll find. And then in both texts, we're told that everything happens just like Jesus says that it would. There's a lot of questions in both of these texts about how this happened. Perhaps in both situations, perhaps Jesus planned in advance. 
this is very, very possible, that he would have planned for a cult to have been tied up in a particular place. He would have planned for a man when he saw the disciples coming to carry this jug of water and they would follow him to the appropriate house. But why the secrecy? Why not just tell him, hey, it's over on Main Street, third house down. And perhaps it's because of secrecy. Jesus knows there's a traitor among them. Jesus knows that many in Jerusalem are looking to, to kill him. So perhaps this level of secrecy and covert mission is appropriate. That's all very easy to, to see. Another suggestion would be, done that, would be that this is all done through a miraculous act of God. That Christ in his power arranges everything miraculously. Which is entirely possible, Right? There's no reason to think that he would have had to call ahead and plan these things, but he could have in his sovereign power ordained them to be done. But regardless of which way we go with that Jesus planned it out a traditional way or miraculously saw that it would take place, what we see is that he had a plan and he was working his plan out. And we shouldn't miss that his plan he knows, leads to the cross. We've talked about this a lot in, our gospel, in the Gospel of Mark. He came for his purpose, and his purpose would be fulfilled. The cross is just a day away, but Jesus knows, even as there's those who are hunting for him, eager to arrest him, eager to kill him, there's something that's left to be done. He, he needs to share this final meal, and he's going to use this meal to teach and to introduce a new meal and to point to a meal that's yet to come. And he has a plan, and he ensures that all of this takes place. Verse 16, the disciples set out and went into the city and found it just as he had told them and prepared the Passover. Spent time thinking this week, why that, all the details of Mark 11, 1 through 6, why all the details here? And I came to the same conclusion I came to when we walked through Mark 11. I think we see here the purposefulness of Jesus the plan of Christ and that whatever he ordains will take place. He made arrangements and ensured that his disciples and he would be able to gather for this Passover meal and we don't have any perception as he walks into a city where he knows he's being hunted. There's no perception that he walks in anxious or fearful. He's not hiding in Bethany. No, he walks into the city and he has a plan for how he and his disciples will eat the meal and nothing thwarts his plan. The cross was coming, but it wouldn't come until everything had taken place just as he had said. Which means, serves as a reminder to us at least, that he is the one we can trust. He preserves us in such a way that without the will of our Heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from our heads. Indeed, all things must work together for the good of our salvation. Jesus had a plan for this final evening and nothing would take him by surprise, not even a traitor in the ranks. We see the omniscience and the sovereignty of Christ. Starting in verse 17, we see that the disciples, they find the room, they're at the table, they're sharing the meal. And during this holy and sacred meal, there comes an announcement. Verse 18. As they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, Truly, I say to you. 
These are words that he started with many, many times, isn't it? Truly, truly, I say to you. And they're waiting to hear what Jesus will say. We know what's coming, but they didn't. Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And their minds are, are spinning. Is he us or just someone in, one of, one of who? One who is eating with me. Don't let familiarity rob you of the shock of the announcement. Jesus is there with the 12, the ones who knew him best, the ones who had, he had cared for the most personally. Men that had given up everything, presumably, to follow Jesus. They'd grown in their love and trust for him and for one another. Every one of those men probably thought, these are the men I know best. And yet Jesus makes this announcement of betrayal. And again, we see that Christ knows all and sees all. We also see the shock of the 11. Sad and confused and all asking, is it I? In that moment, they all recognized, think about this. They all ask, is it I? They all recognized, maybe I'm capable of doing something I didn't even think I would do. Jesus said, we'll be betrayed, and they don't initially point fingers and say, it's probably John, or it's, no, they all ask, would it be me? As a side note, I think that's a good response. When we read the warnings of Scripture that talk about the danger of sin, the deceitfulness of sin, that there are those who have for a time claimed to be followers of Christ and then have walked away proving that they weren't truly of the faith. When you read those warnings in Scripture, what's your response? Is it to think of the person who sits near you in church or to think of your uncle or your cousin or your friend? Or is your response when you come to the warning of Scripture to say, is it I? I think it's appropriate that Hearing those warnings and even seeing what Jesus says here should spur in us a response of, could it be me? They ask, is it I? And he says in verse 20, it's one of the 12 who's dipping the bread into the dish with me. I told you earlier that as they're eating bread, they would have this, this common bowl. They'd all be dipping their bread. For us, we have chips and salsa. We all share this common bowl. And it's not something we usually do with strangers, but with those who are close in fellowship with us, we'll sit at a table and we'll share a common dish. I don't think Jesus, when he says this, is giving a secret sign or a secret clue. It's this one who dipped it at this time. No, he's saying, we've all dipped in this bowl and it's one of us. It's one of you who's here and who's, even during this meal, had a place of close fellowship with me. But he's not surprised. He's not caught off guard. He's in full knowledge and complete control. It's interesting to note that when he says this, that he's betrayed by one who eats with him, he's actually quoting Psalm chapter 41, or Psalm 41, rather. We read this in, in, that, in that Psalm. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. But you, O oh Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. 
By this I know that you delight in me. My enemy will not shout in triumph over me. And I can't help but think that maybe Jesus had this psalm in his mind. Even as he made this announcement of betrayal, my enemy will not shout in triumph over me. Jesus is there saying, I'm going to be betrayed. Jesus is there knowing he's going to be killed, but he is not in fear of defeat. He goes on and makes it very clear that not only is this not a surprise to him, this isn't a surprise to the plan of God. This isn't a plan B. This is as God intended. Verse 21, for the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. What's happening here is according to the plan of God. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. And this is one of those places in Scripture where we get the sovereignty of God and the full responsibility of man side by side, overlapping, right? This is God's plan. God has ordained that his son would be betrayed. Is Judas responsible? Woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. God ordained the death of his son, and yet we see the responsibility and judgment towards the one who betrays him. Your sin, friends, isn't a surprise to God. Oh, but don't let the sovereignty of God be an excuse for your sin. You are responsible. We see this over and over. One of the most clear examples is Acts chapter 4. Again, speaking of the death of Christ, the apostle says, truly in this city were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. All these people were gathered together against Christ, all operating according to their will, according to their desires. Verse 28, to do whatever your hand and plan had predestined to take place. The sovereignty of God and the actions of men for which they are held responsible. What we see here is that God has a plan. There's people acting out that plan, but they are responsible for what they do, which is why Jesus says, woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. And it should be a warning to us, a reminder to us of the seriousness of rebelling against the Lord, that all those who turn against Christ will face judgment, and the judgment will be severe. Does the Bible really talk about judgment? He says here of Judas, it would be better for that man if he had not been born. And I would argue that the same is true for any of us apart from Christ. Born as sinners and rebels. Destined without Christ for judgment. Without Christ, it would be better for us to have not been born except for that God has chosen to glorify himself in this way. The passage reminds us of the seriousness of turning against Christ. And yet it's also a reminder, isn't it, of the commitment of Christ to his plan? We see that Jesus knows exactly what's about to happen, and he doesn't run. He had 11 other disciples. Surely he could have said, he's the one, get him. Right? No. 
He doesn't make an announcement with a plan of changing the course of action. He looks into the eyes of his disciples. He looks into the eyes of Judas, knowing what's in his heart, and he doesn't try to stop it. He has full knowledge, and he moves forward on purpose towards the cross to do the will of the Father and to accomplish our salvation. Here they are at this meal. It's the meal I described. When we think about the Last Supper, we may just think about the meal we share and think, oh, that's pretty quick. Stopped, had some bread and a cup. But no, this was a long evening. And Jesus takes a meal that was already established and had tradition and ritual and meaning, and he begins to redefine it. It says in verse 22, as they were eating, he took bread, customary, right? For the head of the house to take bread and to bless it and to hand it out. All of this is expected. And then he says this, take this is my body. We hear these words all the time. Something you hear me say every first Sunday of the month. But the disciples had never heard this before. And not only is it surprising just because it's odd, but it's surprising because this bread already has a purpose. Jesus is taking something that had a different purpose. It wasn't just bread. It was a bread for the Passover. And saying, it represents me. This was bread that was supposed to point them to God, to God's salvation, to God's work. It almost seems sacrilegious, doesn't it? For Jesus to take God's Passover meal and say, this is about me. The purpose of the meal had always been looking backwards to the first exodus. But now Jesus is announcing a new exodus, a greater salvation. And a salvation that would come through the sacrifice of his own body. In fact, what we know is that all the Passover meals over the years had been pointing towards this. All sacrifices had been leading to this greater sacrifice. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 calls Jesus the new Passover. First, Jesus redefines the bread, and then he does the same thing with the cup. Verse 23, he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. And they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. He redefines the bread. He redefines the cup. Passover had always been a reminder, a remembrance of blood. Remember the first Passover, they kill a lamb. They put his blood over the door. All those who had the blood were saved from judgment. And then after that, Jesus or excuse me, God, established a covenant uh, with his people on Mount Sinai, and it's a covenant that was ratified, how? With blood. That was the old covenant, the promise of God to his people, the covenant that he kept and they broke. Now Jesus says there's more blood and a new covenant. Take, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. And maybe the disciples made the connection, maybe they didn't in the moment, that this is a covenant, a new covenant that had been prophesied before by Ezekiel and by Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 31. Listen to this prophecy given 
long before the time of Christ. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on that day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord. For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and will remember their sin no more. Do you see how what's happening in this room is a, an announcement that's at the very heart of who we are and what we believe? In this moment, Jesus announces the end of the old covenant. And that's no small thing. Generation after generation after generation had been brought into this covenant. Jesus announces the end of that covenant and the inauguration of a new. He announced that while thousands of lambs had been sacrificed over the years, he had come as the true and the final. During that very weekend, thousands upon thousands of lambs would be killed. But the next day, Jesus would be killed as the only one that's truly effective. The lamb who would be slain for the forgiveness of sins and the lamb whose blood would be poured out for many. And what the scripture tells us is that it's through his blood that we're saved. We're all sinners, all guilty before God, all deserving punishment for our sins. And yet Jesus came and shed his blood so that we can be forgiven. This is the new covenant in his blood that all who repent and believe will be saved. On this night, Jesus does something incredible. He takes the Passover meal and he redefines it. He announces himself as the true Passover lamb, the only means of salvation. And then now we get to what you normally think of when you think about this passage, that Jesus is instituting a new meal. Because for all this time, the people of God had had this meal and now Jesus comes, and it's more clear in Matthew and Luke that he says, this is something you will continue to do in remembrance of me. He gives this new meal for the people of God to eat together, where we'll fellowship with him and fellowship with one another, remember his broken body and his shed blood. And every time we come to the table, we're reminded that apart from him, we don't have hope. I told you earlier, this meal is the final Passover. It's an announcement of a new meal. and not spending much time there because we've talked about this quite a lot, the, the Lord's Supper itself. But it's also an announcement of a future meal. Look at verse 25. We're almost done. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. I told you earlier that the meal revolved around four cups. Some have suggested that they had finished the third cup, but Jesus never touched the fourth. Speculation, but fun speculation, that there was a cup left, or one that at least Jesus didn't drink of. Because he says, I won't drink of the fruit of the vine again 
until. Until what? I believe until the final marriage supper of the Lamb. It's described beautifully in Isaiah chapter 25. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast rich of food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all the people, the veil that is spread over all nations. It's one thing to have a really good meal, but even a great meal with great food can be diminished if you know that there's a cloud hanging over the situation, right? This meal is a meal where there's nothing hanging over. He will swallow up death forever. None of those at the meal will be lost. The Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in salvation. That's the day. He said, I'll drink again with you on that day. He's announcing I'm going away and and you're going to continue and you're going to share the table. I'm waiting. Revelation 19.6, John says, I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude like the roar of many waters and the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Alleluia, for the Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. We're the bride, he's the Lamb. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. This is what we believe. Christ will return and in the end, all who are his will be invited to sit with him and to eat and to drink with him. As he was there with his disciples on this night, he knew the next day was a day of crucifixion. Three days later, he would rise. Forty days later, he would return to heaven. The disciples wouldn't see him anymore, but he left them with his promise. There is a future feast. There is a future cup. And we will share it on that day. Another feast where the lamb will serve as the host. We look forward to that day, but... Church, our hope isn't only that day. The hope of Christ is a hope for today and for tomorrow. The God of the Exodus is your God if you're in Christ. For generations from Moses to Christ, God was working out his plan and his plan has never been thwarted. His plan has never been overcome and it never will. Which means every promise he has made is true and can be believed. He's promised he will never leave you and never forsake you. He's promised that your prayers will be heard. He's promised that you don't have to worry, but he provides for those who are his. He has promised that even if you've sinned in the worst way against him, he will forgive you. The testimony of scripture is that God is faithful and he always keeps his promises. So go to God's word this morning and read them and know that they're true. 
Maybe you're here this morning and life seems chaotic or turned upside down. Be encouraged by this. There is a God who has a plan, not only in the world, but in your life. This passage is a reminder of the sovereignty of God, a God whose plans can never be thwarted. So we can trust him with this day and with every day. How did the meal end? A customary Passover meal ended with singing. Now, we've already sang the first part of the halal, Psalm 113, 114, 115. The rest is reserved for the end of the meal. We see in verse 26, they sung a hymn and then they went out to the Mount of Olives. So it's likely that before they left, they sang, the last thing they sang was Psalm 118. It's what we opened our service with this morning. And they would have sang this and believed it to be true, but how much more true are these words because of Christ? Hear this and we'll end. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say his steadfast love endures forever. Let all those who fear the Lord say this, his steadfast love endures forever. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord and the Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side, I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes.